an honor. Always an honor to be uh, asked to speak at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, my name is Rachel R. I'm a recovered alcoholic. And uh, I learned that that is the first promise in the big book. And it says that, um, you know, that we do recover. And um, I didn't hear that um, until several years in, in my recovery when I was um, taken through some of the beginning pages of the book where, you know, on the, the title page, it says this Alcoholics Anonymous is the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. I always thought that I was always going to be recovering. And uh, it was explained to me that although I'm not cured, I recover from the mental obsession. So I no longer believe that I'll ever be able to control and enjoy my drinking, and I no longer have a desire to drink. So still an alcoholic, still can't drink alcohol without setting off the allergy, but uh, I no longer am driven to, um, to drink it. So um, I took my last drink when I was 27 years old. I was living in Phoenix, Arizona. I really do believe that God separated me from alcohol because I was not ready to stop drinking. But it seemed like things just kept happening um, that made me really mm, open to hear the message, let's just say. Um I was in enough pain and God was putting the right people in my life at the right time. And so I was able to hear that message. Um, one, because I was out of runway completely. Um, at that time, um, I, uh, I actually was 12 stepped by my, by my cousin who got, who got sober first, obviously. And, um, at that time I was, I was single, I was pregnant. Um, my circle of friends, um, uh, was really small. It was about four people. It, it was my, my best friend who was, um, escorting at the W hotel up the road. I lived in a really seedy apartment across from, um, all the, the strip clubs near, near campus on the border between um, Scottsdale and Tempe, Arizona. Um, and so I did a lot of my drinking with her, um, her boyfriend, his best friend, and we all shared my car because I no longer had a driver's license and I needed to get around. Um, and I was a bar drinker um, still for the most part. Um, so I needed to, you know, go out and get alcohol. <laughs> so we were living this sort of communal life, right? And they drank like me. So, you know, it, it worked rather, rather well. Um, around this time, I had already been attempting various ways to stop and moderate my drinking. Um, <clears throat> 
you know, some of the things I did were I I would just go to the same bars, concerts, shows, um, friends' houses, but I would just go sober and everyone else would be drinking and I would just be white knuckling it, drinking energy drinks, just trying to get through the through the night. So um that was excruciating. Um tried that for a little while. I thought maybe I'll just, you know, if I have a change of environment, that could help. And so I started spending time with my family on the weekend. I, I would watch movies with my grandma and one of her friends and we would make soup. And, you know, that got old because I would start to get really uncomfortable um, after a period of time without alcohol. So it was only a matter of time before those strategies didn't didn't work anymore. And I started thinking about uh, I started thinking about drinking again. I couldn't con- I couldn't imagine doing anything permanently without it. I mean, I did it at the movies. I did it at weddings, work parties, um, before work, at work, after work, during the week, weekends, mornings. You, I mean, it was just. And I was one of those spree binge drinkers, but um, it seemed like as the disease progressed, I would add another day of the week where I would go out drinking after work. So it was just becoming like gradually more and more um, unmanageable. And, you know, during some of these weekends where I was being sober um sometimes I would show up to where my friends were at and I would lecture them about what I was doing and try to encourage them to get on the water wagon with me (laughs) and so you can only imagine what it's like to be strung out and have your friend show up and uh try to convince you um that you were making bad choices and and to jump on this this water wagon and sometimes I would lecture people while I was drinking I mean I think I had this little um you know, this just self-righteousness um, very early on. And there was a lot of delusion going on and inability to look at what was going on with me and focusing on what everybody else was doing. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, because the sprees were really bad, I think, you know, I started to end up in hospitals detoxing because there really was no predicting how long I would drink once I started. I mean, it really varied, to be honest with you. I might go out for a night of drinking and come home at four and go to bed. Um, I might go out on Thursday and come home on Monday. I There was just no way of predicting. I might go out for a couple hours and drink, a, you know, I might drink a bottle of home at home and just go to bed. It was just all over the place. And the scary thing is I would never, I could never predict what would happen, right? I pretty much always drank excessive, excessively as far as I can uh, remember. And um, I found out about sedatives from a friend, a roommate of mine, and I realized that I could use that to manage my drinking a little bit, to get through the day at work. And, you know, I think it's in Dr. Bob's story where they talk about or maybe it's also Bill's story where they talk about, you know, calling the doctor in for some high powered sedatives in, in the morning to ease his 
nerves and um you know today we have benzos and um you know that was just another tool i used to try to manage this thing um so what was i like at that time <laughs> it was not uncommon for me to throw up on the way at work on the way to work um at work um i was having an emotional affair with somebody at work um you know I worked at a lot of different places. I've had a lot of different jobs and they just didn't last. And, um, you know, I just couldn't show up to work every day. And I remember um, how ashamed I felt every time I had to call an employer one more time and say, I'm sick, I can't, you know, and make up an excuse. Um, because I literally could not come to work. I could not, there, there was just no, no way I could hold down a job or, or show up in that, in that condition. So, um, you know, there was, there was a lot of shame and a lot of confusion around why my life was on fire. I had no understanding of what alcoholism was, um, all I knew is that it was fun at first, um, and then it was not fun anymore after several years. Uh, I probably had my first Budweiser in seventh grade. I smoked a joint, and I remember passing out immediately, right? And so I kind of, um, I ended up like having my first drunk and going to a basketball game in middle school, uh, and remember just feeling invincible, right? <laughs> you know, I was uh, I was with some friends over at a friend's house and they got into their parents' liquor stash or something. We all had some liquor of some sort. I don't know. Um, and I didn't get in trouble for it. No one detected it. And I actually took a detour um, before really committing myself to drinking um, and did a lot of dry goods first for many years. And, um, you know, that worked for a while. And then right around, I think, 20 years old, when I got the fake idea and could start going to bars, and I just felt like, wow, this is my scene. These are my people. I felt like I had really arrived somewhere. I belonged somewhere. And I thought it was a pretty cool scene. Um, and in order to quiet my anxiety, I had a drink before I went. And, um, you know, it was fun until I started losing um, all of the people in, in my life because, um, there was conflict with everybody, you know, um, I couldn't maintain a healthy relationship with anybody, friend or, or otherwise. Um, so, you know, thankfully my cousin comes into the picture when I'm, I'm 27 and, uh, you know, it's not like my family didn't try to convince me to go to AA meetings. Or, you know, my employer, you know, I didn't get, you know, scared a little by my employers threatening to, to fire me or that the first UI didn't scare me a little, but it just wasn't enough. And there was something different about hearing, you know, from somebody who drank the way I did and who had found a way out, um, 
there was something different about that message than my grandmother sending me an email saying I should consider getting a life coach or want to go to an AA meeting. Like there's just something, right? There's more credibility to the guy that drank like I did and was actually doing better. And the really strange thing that happened when my cousin called me that night to um, tell me that he had got sober, tell me a little bit about his story and encourage me to go to a meeting that night because he had been watching all of this unfold um, over social media, actually. And, um, you know, the, the funny thing that happened was that he told me he loved me at the end of the conversation. And that's something we never said in my family. I actually grew up with my two cousins and, and my aunt and uncle. Um, and, you know, we just didn't express that in our family growing up, right? That's not how we, that's not what we did. And that's not a thing that we said. So I thought, huh. There's something different about my cousin. Um, and it was it was intriguing. And I think at that time I had like collected enough pain and misery and felt honestly like I was really out of options. I was facing some jail time. I had lost my job. I was getting evicted from my apartment. I'm like, well, I don't have anything else going on. I'll just go to this AA meeting. And um it probably my third AA meeting in my entire life. And uh, it was a group. Um it was in a strip mall across the street from um, where I was living. And the meeting, the group was called Bloopers. And <laughs> I walked in there and uh, I said, I don't know what, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic. And, you know, I got some different responses from people. One guy said, keep coming back. Another lady said, you're welcome to try some controlled drinking. Um, and I thought, well, I'm definitely not doing that. That's terrible advice. Why would you? I didn't realize this was in the book, right? Um, you know, if you're not convinced, you could always try some controlled drinking. And I thought, what an absurd thing to say to a new person. But um, thankfully, you know, I grabbed onto a sponsor after a couple meetings. Uh, I just remember this woman was chairing a meeting and she just said something really honest about like how she was would get resentments at her family sometimes. And I thought that's really relatable. And um, I don't know, I just grabbed this lady and I started doing what she told me to do. And I don't know if like we worked the steps within a year, um, we, like we moved through the work. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a lot going on. I just did whatever she was telling me mostly. I probably did not do all the things she said, of course. But we got through the work. I know that much. And I did this the service commitments she suggested. And I was feeling okay. I think, honestly, I was just happy not to um, be feeling sick and hopeless and completely ashamed of myself all the time any longer. Um, and I remember feeling kind of over-sober, like really overzealous. <laughs> I wanted to tell everybody about it and invite everyone into AA. And I was really excited about it. Um, and I was feeling pretty good, right? And um, I realized I was probably not going to be able to raise this baby without some help from my family, but there wasn't any family in Arizona. So um, my dad's side of the family out in North Carolina invited me to, um, to move out here to Charlotte so that they could, they could help out. 
And I took them up on their offer. And um, I packed everything into my car. By that time, my daughter um, was born. She was born September 2010. And the really cool thing about um, the women in the fellowship out there was they were really, I mean, they just kind of circled around me. And uh, that was a lifeline for me. I remember um, those are, I called people, the people in AA when I was going into labor, I called my friend Mary and she grabbed her, her daughter and our friend Allie. And they came to my apartment because I don't have a car, right? <laughs> so they pick me up and they take me to the hospital and uh, I'm going into labor and um, they say, you know, you're not quite ready yet. The doctor said, we're going to give you an epidural. It's about midnight, but go to sleep, we'll wake you up when it's time. And so these girls, there was no bed. There was no couch in that room. They laid on the floor and slept there with me until 5 a.m. when they woke me up and they stayed through the entire thing. Um, I had never experienced anything so loving and supportive in my entire life. And they reassured me, oh, we have gone through the wilderness program. We've slept out, you know, on the bare ground in the freezing cold. Like this is nothing. But to me, I mean, that meant that meant a lot to me. And I think it's just a, like a demonstration of of the love in, in the, of the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so I'm really grateful to those, to those girls, to this, to this day. And, um, so yeah, my daughter, my daughter was born and, and I moved out to North Carolina. We packed everything in the car. I still have the, the blow and go in the car. My aunt had to learn how to drive a stick shift, um, the day she flew in to drive me over. She flew from North Carolina to Arizona to drive me over so I would have my car. Never driven a stick shift in her life. That was the most amusing road trip I have ever been on. I'm blowing in the breathalyzer. She's stalling out on the freeway. I mean, it's just like God just kept showing up and putting these people in my life to help me get through um, uh, a lot of new experiences and challenging experiences in that first year. Um, so I arrived in North Carolina and my family really helped me get back on my feet. And I think everything was going okay. I got plugged in. I got a sponsor um, right away. I got involved in a women's group. And um, I think what happened was, you know, I was in this pattern of I would do all 12 steps and then I had no concept of growth and maintenance. So I would let off the gas as soon as I was done. And then my ego would come right back. All the resentment would come back. All the self-obsession would come back. And then I would start to get really uncomfortable again. Thankfully, I moved, got a new sponsor. She required me to do the steps again. Got a little bit of relief, let off the gas, thought I could get by off going to meetings and doing service work at meetings. And, you know, something you've heard often um, in groups in, in this area was, you know, if you're not doing well, just up your meetings. You just need to go to more meetings. So I would try that. 
Um, and they would say things like, we'll just start reading page 86 in the morning. And so I would do that, but I wouldn't follow any of the directions on page 86. I would just read it, right? And say, check, you know, I did it, I did the thing. Um, there was like no sense of how to actually apply what was in the book to my everyday life. So I would get a little relief and feel a little belonging at the meeting. And I would get lots of attention and do the service work. And then I would leave it and have zero tools. No relationship with God, nothing. And so I would start to get really uncomfortable again. Um, and what I ended up doing was... Um, I started looking around for other solutions to that, that feeling of discomfort. And one of the solutions I was looking into was this uh, young guy at the, at the meetings who had a, a really nice Southern accent, who was always really nice to me and my daughter. And I thought, I'll, you know, get to know this guy. <laughs> this is the solution. This uh, person was not sober. And we uh, jumped into a relationship without even knowing each other. And I spent three painful years trying to convince him that he should work a program in Alcoholics Anonymous. Meanwhile, I'm not really working one. I think I am because I'm going to meetings. I call my sponsor to talk about my problems. And then I call around for advice. You know, what should I do about this? What should I... Like, I thought that I was doing the program. Meanwhile, I'm crawling out of my skin. Um, and so I start looking around for other solutions. I start showing up in psychiatrist's office, offices, um, tried a bunch of different medications. None of them even scratched the surface. Tried DBT tried this therapy, tried that therapy. I even tried some Tony Robbins stuff. And I even felt better for a little while. And um, then that would wear off. And, um, you know, basically I was not happy about my sobriety. I did not know there was another way. I just sort of was starting to feel like A just didn't work. That's why I was shopping around for other solutions outside of AA. And I really believe now, because I've lived it and experienced it, that if you have not tried everything else, you will not try the entire program of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you still think there's some other way to fix your spiritual malady, then you're just not going to be willing to go to any lengths. That was my experience. Um, so, you know, as you can imagine, that led to a very painful emotional bottom. Um, I think it hit like the, the bottom bottom fell out in about 2020 during COVID. And around that time, I was just like, I was unhinged completely unhinged. Um, I was starting to use people the way I had used alcohol. That was another solution I sought out. Um, 
And that created so much chaos and so much damage and so much misery. I remember I contemplated um, calling my daughter's dad and saying, I don't know what else to do. I don't think I'm capable of being a parent. I feel so ashamed of who I am. Um, I, I give up. I don't think I'm supposed to be a parent. I don't think I'm qualified. I considered um, shipping her off, my daughter off to live with her dad in Arizona. I was so desperate. Um, and it was around that time I had a friend who was actually, you know, going to the women's meetings, struggling with some similar things. Just, I think we were both dry, right? Just really dry. And, um, she found this woman who took her through the steps and she changed like radically something about her, like her heart, her soul, everything I mean, it was like she had soul surgery or something. She seemed so free. And I just looked at her and said, can you give me this woman's number? <laughs> I need to talk. I need to talk to this woman. And listen, I know the sponsor is not the solution. I, I understand that if I don't have this gift of willingness, which is not something I can just um, conjure up within myself, right? Um, I don't know to be certain, but I think the willingness for me was a combination of divine grace and collecting a lot of misery in sobriety and the amount of pain I just kept collecting and collecting, um, led me to a place of willingness to finally follow the directions in the book. And so I got in touch with this woman and again, like the lineage doesn't matter, but what I'll tell you is she, uh, was, was carried the message by someone who was sponsored by somebody in Dallas named Cliff, who's no longer with us. Um, and the, the way the message was carried to her and the way she carried it to me was so incredibly simple and clear. And it was about God. Um, and after going through the process with her, um, we got right down to the, the undiluted message of Alcoholics Anonymous. No additional literature no additional advice. It was just like, these are the directions. If you're not desperate, I cannot help. And at one point she even looked at me and she said, I don't, I'm not even sure if you're ready. You don't even seem desperate enough. And I went, please do not give up on me. I am like, I cannot continue on like this. And for some reason she considered continuing to work with me. And it became very clear after doing a fifth step with her, what my real problem was. And I did not get this the entire time that my problem was actually selfishness. I do not know how I missed this. I thought my problem was something else. Um, I even remember people talking about their selfishness in meetings and correcting them because that's not nice to say about yourself. It became so clear after doing the work with her what exactly was blocking me off from God. 
And uh, because she um, was so direct about helping me see that in my inventory, something changed within me. And I started to have an actual awakening. Um, I started to have a real experience uh, with God. And I started to actually practice um, the principles <laughs> of the program. And um, the way we worked it was you follow the direction, you know, you do all the steps and you get out and you start helping people right away, like immediately. And your primary purpose is to find people and to help. And we get better by helping others. Right. And so um, the other condition was send me your nightly review every night. I had never done a nightly review. I had no accountability there. Uh, and to this day, I have never stopped doing it. The other condition was we do 10 steps uh, as their directions are laid out in the book. And I do remember looking at those directions for the first 10 years of my sobriety. Um, I don't know if I said, but I got sober in 2010. And about the first 10 years, I, we, I studied the book. I sat in big book studies. I studied the 12 and 12. I looked at those directions and thought, no one calls their sponsor every time they're disturbed. Who has time for that? I'm not bothering my sponsor every time I'm resentful. You know, who's actually doing that? And to be honest, I don't think anybody was doing that in my group. So I did not do that. Um, my sponsor was actually doing this. And, um, you know, in the beginning, it was 10 steps all day, most days. You know, just the level of selfishness was intense. I thought I was crazy. I hadn't looked at this stuff for a long time, honestly. So I was just like bombarded with all these thoughts because I was actually awake, you know? Um, uh, and, you know, the thing about bottoming out and being dry is it's more painful than being an active alcoholic because there's zero anesthesia. You're just awake with your thoughts uh, and there is nothing to buffer it. So, um, you know, something that also had to happen, I was going to have to turn over romantic relationships over to God and let God start managing that. Because the way I was managing it is I was using everybody for security, um, comfort. <laughs> it, it was just baffling to me that I had been doing this for so long that had to change and it had become objectionable enough that I was like god I don't know what my relationships are going to look like in the future but they're all really bad and I don't like the way that I'm showing up in them uh and so I'm open to what you have in store for me and um you know uh what that kind of kind of looks like today for me, I'll, I'll use an example that happened uh, last week. So I was reading, I think it was this morning, I was reading um, Emmett Fox's daily devotional and it said, shallow thinkers sometimes say doggedly and pessimistically, human nature never changes or you can't change human nature. 
The truth is that there is no need for human nature to change. The nature of man is such he can bring an unlimited quantity of good into his life. That in his nature and no better arrangement could be imagined. Human nature is such that man can turn to God anywhere at any time and by believing in his care and protection and thinking in accordance with this belief, fill his heart with peace and poise, rebuild his body into health and strength, and surround himself with harmonious and joyous conditions. And then uh, there's a passage there from John 10, 10 that says, I come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And, you know, <laughs> all you, there's some places that like really test my, mm, my spiritual fitness. The airport is one of them. I really don't like who I become at the airport. Um, I have learned to show up differently at the airport, but it takes um, some, it's conditional. Last week, I rushed to get my daughter to the airport for a 7 a.m. flight. I skipped my morning meditation. I was thinking mostly about were we going to make it on time? Was I going to be able to get my coffee? And I have to tell you, I'm not proud of how I acted um, that morning and how I treated people. That's me when I don't treat my alcoholism. Um, I act immature, inconsiderate, and really selfish, and I get really embarrassed about it later. Um, the best I can do is make and I did make amends to my daughter. Um, kids will say the most interesting things <laughs> after hearing some, a few daily amends from me. One day she said, mom, I don't like these amends. They make me uncomfortable. And the reason is you say sorry, but it's probably going to happen again. And I thought, gosh, there is just nothing further from the truth because selfishness will crop up again. Um, resentment will crop up again. Fear will crop up again. She's right. Um, but, you know, I make the amends anyway. And I say, listen, I should have listened to you. I'm sorry for how I talked to you. You didn't deserve that. And there's this part in the book um, in the family afterward and I don't know if I have it handy, but it says something like, you know, the family will sit down and um, once you start to admit your shortcomings, it makes for some helpful, uh, of helpful family meeting and a helpful discussion. So what I've learned to practice with my daughter is not to make this a very formal amends to her, but to say, listen, um, you know, this is what was going on and, and, you know, what I did was, what I did was wrong. And it's actually, um, created a space for her to open up about herself, um, and share some things, you know, that she's experiencing in those moments and admit some of her shortcomings. So literally just taking those, you know, um, instructions right out of the book and trying to apply them to my relationships things have slowly um, started to change in our household. 
when I said I was at an emotional bottom during COVID, what I mean was, um, and when I say I was unhinged, I mean, I was violent. A lot of things were broken in my house and I wasn't drinking, but I was acting worse than before. Um, worse than I was in active alcoholism, to be honest with you. Um, and if I don't treat my alcoholism, it finds loopholes. You know, it finds other ways to seek relief. It might be control. It might be using people. Um, you know, I'm sure it could be money or gambling. Um, if I don't treat it, that hasn't been my experience, but, um, usually it's, it's control, anger, um, and, and seeking comfort from, from people. And so, um, our house, there's peace in our house today. You know, things don't get thrown. Things don't get broken. I don't have to yell to get my point across. I did not think I would ever stop yelling. Um, I was just such an angry person for so long, well into, well into sobriety. And, you know, every once in a while I have my moments where I do need to make an amends and I do make mistakes, but here's what, here's what's so cool about, um, the principles in this program. Uh, I went to pick my daughter up, um, for her flight home earlier this week. And I just sat down with God and was like, I really don't want to repeat what happened when I dropped her off. I would like to show up the way you would have me show up. What do you need me to do? God said, just go be helpful. Focus on what's going on with other people. And so I was just laser focused. I get to the airport. I'm talking to a newcomer on the way. I'm looking around at the airport. Who needs help? Is there an old person? Maybe there's a, a kid that needs comfort. <laughs> you know, maybe someone's thirsty. I don't know anyone, somebody. I just need to be to be helpful. And um, because I'm looking for these things and not thinking about, I need to be first in line. I need to get my coffee. Me, 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 me. Um, I get in line behind this lady and it doesn't even occur to me. She's 30 paces behind the rest of the people in the security line. And I'm just on my little cloud and I don't even notice. And she turns around and says, I'm holding up the whole line. And I looked at her and I said, that didn't even occur to me. And we just started giggling and we started talking in the line and we get through security and I'm putting on my shoes on the bench on the other side. And she shows up and sits down and uh, she makes a little, another little joke and I make a little joke back. And she said, God bless you. I hope you have a really good day. And she stands up and she just reaches out her arms to give me a big hug. And I thought, if I was running around thinking about myself, this would not have happened. You know, I just don't get those kinds of opportunities when I'm in, in self. And so when I read, like, when I read this from Emmett Fox, it was so true. It was like it was actually happening there at the airport and I picked my daughter up and from her flight and you know we got a meal and we had a lovely time and it was completely uneventful but it just shows like I only get a daily reprieve based on the maintenance of my spiritual condition so it's all conditional it's about like you know am I thinking of others and how I can meet their needs my MO is constant thought of me and how other people can meet my needs. 
And so I know it sounds like a tall order to be constantly thinking of others and how we might meet their needs, but it's it's a perfect ideal. It's not something we'll ever actually get to, but it's something I strive for. And it's a really important principle um, of the program um, and in our book. And as long as I'm focused on that, I'm not in me. Um, and so, you know, as long as I'm practicing that, I'm not thinking about, I'm not suffering. I'm really not suffering. Um, you know, trying to, it says we try to carry the message. We're not always successful. You know, I've learned uh, through a lot of inventory and experience that sometimes it's okay just to look at someone and say, I don't think I'm able to help you. Or if you're not willing to go to any lengths, I just can't help. I need to go find the next person who is really desperate and will go to any lengths. And that's not because you're a bad person because you're not willing enough. It's just a fact. And, um, you know, I understand willingness and, and desperation is a gift, but I can't produce that in anybody. And I need to prioritize the people who are, are going to be willing to go to any length. So um, I try to carry the message. It does not always land. I, try, I go to, into a treatment center once a month. Um, I get give my phone number out all the time. I get a lot of phone calls, sometimes two phone calls. Um, a lot of people ask me to sponsor them and never follow through. But there was one lady who was really persistent. And we met over Zoom and I came down to the treatment center and we got through all 12 steps and probably um, three weeks, maybe four weeks. And, um, you know, it's just really cool to see the light come on for somebody else and see them get free of, of alcohol and start thinking about helping other people. And I'm still in touch with her and um, I'm able to pick her up and take her to a, a, a workshop we have here in a, a couple of weeks. And that's just such a, a gift. And I know sponsoring can be hard and it can be heartbreaking and, and disappointing sometimes when um, not everybody makes it. Uh, but we're so qualified to help. You know, no matter how insignificant you think what you have is, it is an absolute lifeline to somebody that's out there still drowning. You know, um, it's gold for them. And so, you know, and it's a practice, right? <laughs> it is an absolute practice. We don't do it alone. Um, I stayed really close to God and my sponsor when I was, um, I was basically, I think after I redid the steps in 2020, relearning all of this, you know, I had to forget everything I knew and learn how to actually practice this program. I felt like a newcomer learning how to sponsor. I had so many questions. I was talking to so many people all the time. It was an exciting time. I still try to talk to as many people as possible, even if it's just to be a tiny spoke and a big wheel and plant a little seed. I don't have to sponsor that person to share my story and give them a little bit of hope and answer a couple questions um, and, and explain what the, pro the program of action is. So um, that keeps me sane. It has gotten me through a lot of hard times trying to help people. I don't have to sponsor all of them. I'm not for everybody, you know? Um, I can't help all of them, but I will continue to 
to try. And uh, I think I think that's my time. Thanks uh, again for for having me here tonight. Thank you, Rachel. Very good. That was awesome.